0: You know, when you read the Gospels, the thing that stands out, at least to me, is the way Jesus is so forgiving and patient, even tender with what you might call the ordinary sinner, just the ordinary person who's trying to do right, but sometimes doesn't do right, who sins out of weakness, who would like to please God, but finds themselves tangled up in one sin or another. Jesus was never harsh toward such people. He never threatened them with hell. There was always this message of grace. But then, surprisingly, when you go to the other side, the religious leaders, people who pointed the finger at others and demanded that they live as God would have them live, but who were themselves falling short, Jesus was severe, sometimes extremely harsh, and would sometimes threaten them with hell. Jesus had no patience for spiritual abusers. And as we've been reading through Matthew, we've come to Matthew chapter 23 this week. And in that chapter, Jesus talks of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, it's important to understand Not every scribe, not every Pharisee was ungodly. In fact, many of them were godly people sincerely seeking to see God and and obey God. But there were many, certainly not a few, who were offended by Jesus because, well, he worked at cross purposes to their purposes, their proud purposes. And they opposed him as a result. And JESUS COULD GIVE AS WELL AS RECEIVE, AND HE GAVE SOME STERN WORDS TO THESE PEOPLE. I WANT US TO LOOK AT WHAT JESUS SAYS IN MATTHEW CHAPTER 23, THE FIRST 12 VERSES, WHAT HE SAYS ABOUT THE SCRIBES AND PHARISEES. JESUS SAID TO THE CROWDS AND TO HIS DISCIPLES, THE TEACHERS OF THE LAW, THAT IS THE SCRIBES, AND THE PHARISEES SIT IN MOSES' SEAT. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to remove them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassel, the tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, For you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." You see what I mean about stern words. Jesus doesn't hold back. In fact, as you go through the rest of Matthew 23, you'll see that Jesus pronounces woe after woe upon the very people who were supposed to be upholding the cause of God in the world. And that's because simply claiming to be a spiritual leader doesn't make you that. And in this passage, we have set out in a way that is unmistakable the way the Lord thinks about spiritual leadership. And the way I want to approach it as we try to unpack these words of Jesus is, to answer, is by answering a question. What can Christian believers expect of their leaders? What is it that you have every right to? to require of those who would lead in the church of God. And that would include the pastor or other staff, lay leaders, deacons, life group leaders, whoever. What can you legitimately expect of them? Taking from this passage what Jesus expects from the scribes and Pharisees. Well, the first thing you can expect is integrity. Jesus says of the scribes and Pharisees, they do not, or rather he says, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. You can expect Christian leaders to live what they say, or as we sometimes put it, to walk the talk. If they don't, they are not legitimate leaders. Jesus makes that very, very clear. Now, I have to tell you, I read a verse like this, They don't practice what they preach, and I I have a certain sense of fear and trembling about it. After all, every single week I'm getting up preaching to people, and I am not unaware that I fall far short of the ideals that I preach. I think you could say the same thing when you talk to someone about Christ. Sometimes you'll think, you know, I'm saying this is the Lord's will, but I fall short. We're all made of the same flesh and blood. We all fall short. But when I say you can expect integrity, I'm not saying you can expect perfection. None of us is perfect. We all sin. But a person with integrity when sinning confesses it. They don't excuse it. They don't excuse it. They don't explain it away. They don't deny it. They confess it. They seek forgiveness. The person with integrity also is sincere in seeking to do the will of God. They're sincere and committed. They may stumble, they may fall, they may make mistakes, and they confess it. But there isn't a glaring hypocrisy. This huge gap between what they say and what they do. And so you can expect that of your leaders. If you're a Christian. It seems to me that churches tend to make a mistake on the extremes. Sometimes they can be way too demanding of their leaders, including their pastors, and they don't ask for integrity. They ask for perfection, and guess what? They're not going to get it. I've known some churches that Jesus would have trouble pastoring. He may not quite measure up to their expectations. But on the other side, And it may be there are more churches on the other side. I don't know. Who's to say? But on the other side, there are churches everywhere led by pastors and other church leaders who are not practicing what they preach. And the people in the church let them get away with it. Money is misused. People are mistreated. And the people of the church give excuses, explain it away. They tell themselves, I didn't really see that. That wasn't really happening. Well, the fact is, we have to expect integrity, and we have the right to expect integrity of leaders. Not perfection, but certainly sincerity. And when mistakes are made, they shouldn't be excused, overlooked, or denied. They should be confessed. So, you have a right to expect that of Christian leaders, integrity. Another thing you have the right to expect, and that is a pastoral spirit. A pastor is a shepherd. Shepherd takes care of sheep. The shepherd is there for the sheep, not the sheep for the shepherd. So, the shepherd watches over them, feeds them, protects them guides them, is seeking the well-being of the entire flock. That's not the spirit in which many scribes and Pharisees ministered. Look at what Jesus says again. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to remove them. The loads Jesus is talking about are all the extra commandments the scribes and Pharisees gave the people. I mean extra, over and above the Bible. See, they believed that you ought to obey all the commandments of the Scriptures. But then they said, you know, just to be on the safe side, just to make sure you don't violate those, you ought to obey all these other ones too. And so they piled up these burdens on people that made it so difficult to serve God. So discouraging to serve God because you could never keep track of all the commandments. You knew you couldn't obey them all and you continually felt at risk of judgment because you just didn't measure up to these standards, these heavy loads that were laid upon you. Famously, the Sabbath. God commands in the Old Testament that you are to keep one day holy and on that day you're not to work simple enough, right? But then people started asking, well, wait, we need to define what counts as work here. And so the scribes and Pharisees got busy and they started deciding, okay, how far can you travel before it becomes work? And so they defined how far you could walk on the Sabbath day. If you walked further than that, it was a sin. They even got to the point where they said, what about when you're sick? Can you call on the doctor? Well, if it's a life-threatening illness, you can call on the doctor. But otherwise, you need to wait till the day after Sabbath. So they were adding all these commandments. And someone who's sick says, well, can I call for the doctor? No, you can't call for the doctor. But I feel terrible. Well, that's too bad. That's what the Sabbath is. It's, it's a time of rest. You're not supposed to work. But, but how does that work? I'm just calling for the doctor. That's the law of God. You need to obey it. See, not lifting a finger to help. That's the spirit Jesus comes against here in this passage. That's not a pastoral spirit. That's not the spirit of a shepherd. That's the spirit of an overlord. A few weeks ago, I talked about divorce and remarriage. Some of you were here. And I told the story of a woman who called from Pennsylvania. I was teaching in seminary. And her call was routed to my office, and she had a terrible problem. Some years before, she had divorced her husband. She said it was my fault. It was a sin. I had no good grounds to divorce him. In fact, it was my failure that caused the marriage to fail. But then subsequently, I got remarried, and I've had three children since then but I felt this lack in my life and so was my husband and, and we wanted to turn to back to God. We wanted to get right with God. So we went back to my home church where I was raised and they told us I couldn't be saved unless I divorced my husband and was reconciled to my first husband or remained single. The grounds for that was Jesus said, if you get divorced and remarried, you're committing adultery. Now, I talked about what he meant a few weeks ago. If you're interested, you can get that sermon. But the point here is that they said to her, you can't be saved. You can't go to heaven, and you sure can't be a member of our church Unless you divorce your husband. She said, but but I can't do that. How can I divorce my husband? I love him, I have children. That's what the Word of God requires. You have to divorce him and be reconciled or stay single. But what about my kids? This is their father. This would hurt them. It's not our problem. I'm sure they didn't say it like that. But I mean, that was their spirit. It's not our problem, it's what the Bible says. You have to obey the Bible. See, piling up this load on this poor woman, she could hardly talk for her tears. She was in terror, standing, she thought, between hell and the dissolution of her family. She didn't know what to do. This burden is piled up upon her, and they won't lift a finger. They just draw a line. Well, you know what? (laughs) If you want to be on this side, you want to be on the right side with us, you got to divorce your husband. That's the kind of thing Jesus was talking about. Preachers can sometimes get like that where they start laying out the commands of God and they start laying into people and they start talking about commitment to Christ. No compromise. And they just preach this perfectionist message as if they're perfect. When we all know they're not. They preach that message and however true it might be in some abstract sense, there's no Accounting for the struggles of flesh and blood, of human beings in real life trying to appropriate this truth. Instead of standing on some high holy ground looking down and condemning people, we need to come alongside people in that loving spirit and try to help them. That's exactly what the Pharisees and scribes were not doing. I met a man who had just received Jesus Christ as his Savior. He was having trouble with drugs. He had trouble before he got saved. He's been saved, and he's still having trouble. He's using and then swearing off it and then using again and swearing off it. The only comfort he found was in Romans 7, where it says, I do what I do not want to do, but what I hate that I do. That's where he was. I said, listen, There's help. There are Christian ministries that are devoted to helping you to get stronger in your faith and follow Jesus. So I called one of them. It was a retreat center, Christian program. And I said, I have someone I'd like to talk with you about admitting into your program. Is he a Christian? Yes, he's a Christian. He received Jesus Christ, you know, whenever it was. And he said, well... What is his problem? I said, well, he's struggling with, with drugs, and he's on again, off again. He's trying to shake that. And he just needs help. And there was this long pause. And then he said, well, is he a Christian? Ah, I got it then. I got it then. If he's really a Christian, it wouldn't be happening. And I'm thinking, who do you think you are? You know, who do you think you are? And besides that, you're supposed to be overseeing a drug rehab center. It's <laughs> supposed to be a Christian program. And you know anything about Christians struggling with sin? Actually, you do. You do, because your self-righteousness reeks. See, it's that, it's that lack of love. You have the right to expect a pastoral spirit from Christian leaders. I'm not talking about compromising on what the Scriptures teach. I'm not saying that. But a spirit that makes it obvious we're all in this together, and we're all seeking grace together. I love this quote from the British New Testament scholar William Barclay. Here is the test of any presentation of religion. Does it create wings to lift people up? or a dead weight to drag them down? Does it bring about joy or depression? Are people helped by their religion, or are they haunted by it? Does it carry them, or have they to carry it? Whenever religion becomes a depressing affair of burdens and prohibitions, it ceases to be a true religion. Jesus said the scribes and Pharisees were piling up burdens on people. He said in chapter 11, Take my yoke upon you, that is, take my teaching, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." See, Jesus doesn't come on as this harsh, judging presence, but as a pastoral presence seeking to build and encourage and lift. You don't ever have to be afraid to come to God with your failures, with your sins, with your problems. And you have every Reason to expect your leaders to have that spirit. If they come off with a harsh, judgmental spirit, well, they're not walking in the spirit of Christ. And then, thirdly, you have every right as a Christian to expect self effacing humility out of your leaders. Now, when I talk about self effacing humility, I'm talking about SOMEBODY NOT NEEDING TO BE IN THE LIMELIGHT, SOMEONE WHO DOESN'T HAVE TO BE GIVEN HONORS, SOMEBODY YOU DON'T ALWAYS HAVE TO DEFER TO. NOW, THAT'S NOT WHAT WE SEE IN THE SCRIBES AND Pharisees. ONCE AGAIN, JESUS SAYS EVERYTHING THEY DO IS DONE FOR PEOPLE TO SEE. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. They want all the honor, all the deference. They want to have the reputation for being spiritual. That's what all this stuff about phylacteries and tassels is about. A phylactery was a little small box made out of leather, and inside that box would be small scrolls, and on each scroll would be written scriptures. And those boxes would be worn either on the left wrist or left forearm and on the forehead. This was a way, a literal way, that the ancient Jews would try to observe the commandment in Deuteronomy that you were to keep the law on your hand and on your forehead. What the command means to say is that everything you do and everything you think should be controlled by Torah. And so they made phylacteries to remind themselves of Torah. And so the scriptures would be in the phylactery and those scriptures would be part of their prayer. In fact, if you want a picture of it, Here is a contemporary picture of a phylactery on the left, and you can see the little box that's there. On the right, you see tassels. You see the white and the blue thread. That's what the Old Testament commands Israel to put on the end of their garments. They were to have tassels of blue and white. And according to the law, this was to remind them of the law, of Torah. So every time they saw these tassels, they were reminded they were to obey God. Nothing wrong with phylacteries. In fact, it's good. It's a reminder of the law of God. Nothing wrong with tassels. It's actually commanded by God. But what Jesus says is, you want that reputation for being spiritual, so you make your phylacteries broad so that everyone sees them. You make the tassels so long that they can't miss how pious you are. And all of that completely misses the spirit of Jesus Christ, that self-effacing humility to which we are called. These, These leaders want to be called rabbi because it's a term of honor. Jesus says to his disciples, I don't want any of you called rabbi. Nothing wrong with the term itself. The title's not wrong. That's not what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to say you shouldn't put yourself above people that way. I don't want any of you to be called rabbi because there's one teacher, the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is Lord, and we're all brothers and sisters under Jesus. There's no spiritual hierarchy. There's a practical hierarchy in the church that is in order for any group of people to get anything done is a practical matter. You have to have some people responsible for some things, others for other things. That's a practical thing. But there's no spiritual hierarchy, and whatever hierarchy there is has to be kept in the spirit of Christ. I don't want any of you called rabbi. There's one teacher. I don't want anyone called father. Rabbis were called father by their disciples. I don't want any, you call, anybody call you father because we have one father in heaven. Now, there are churches where you have priests who are called father, and I'll let them debate whether that's wise or not, but that's really not the point. You can have someone called father as a deeply humble person. The point, again, is you want to be called rabbi above everyone else? I don't want any of my disciples called rabbi and putting on those heirs. I don't want any of them called father like rabbis were called. I don't want any of them called instructors or mentors. The Greek could be translated that way. That was a term used of rabbis as well. Instead, you are all brothers and sisters. That's it. There is an equality. So, the greatest among you, says Jesus, will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what can you expect as Christians? What can you expect of Christian leaders? Number one, integrity. Number two, a pastoral spirit. Number three, self-effacing humility. Now let's take those expectations and turn them in on ourselves because there aren't two standards here. GOD WANTS ALL OF US AND EVERYONE IN THIS ROOM WHO CLAIM JESUS CHRIST AS LORD AND SAVIOR WANTS EVERY SINGLE ONE OF US TO LIVE WITH INTEGRITY. YOU DON'T HAVE TO BE PERFECT, BUT YOU CONFESS SINS. YOU DON'T JUSTIFY THEM, EXCUSE THEM, OR DENY THEM. YOU CONFESS THEM AND SEEK FORGIVENESS. WE NEED SINCERE FOLLOWING OF JESUS. WE'RE ALL CALLED TO INTEGRITY. Pastoral spirit, well, maybe not everyone's called to show pastoral spirit. We're all shown to call a kind, loving spirit, seeking to encourage and build up people, not tear them down, not burn them under, not lay heavy weights on them. This is especially true for those of you who are parents. Do not put loads on your children that they can't carry, and then think that you're being a good parent for doing so. That's not the way of Jesus. We are to have a loving spirit toward one another. We're not to be critics, and we're not to be harsh. And then thirdly, self-effacing humility. You know what? It's not all about us. It's not all about our status, our standing. We don't have to curate our image on social media. There's so many people today, even in the church, who are more interested in gaining celebrity than they are in following Jesus. It's all about what they can project. Or it's all about status. It's all about looking good. You don't have to do that. In fact, you're not to do that. Self-effacing humility. Have the security in Jesus to not have to prove yourself to everybody else. That's what he's saying. That's a high calling for us all. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to show us an example of something that that we don't see in our world very much. Lord, what we see all too often is hypocrisy, not integrity. All too often, Lord, what we see is a harsh, judgmental spirit, a legalistic spirit, rather than a pastoral, loving, kind spirit. And all too often, Lord, even sometimes in the church, we don't find a self-effacing humility, but instead a lust for high standing and status, a lust to be number one, a lust to outdo one another. Forgive us for all of that, but thank you for giving us an example of something better in Jesus. And we pray that you would work in us These characteristics, Lord, that we know are pleasing to you, work them in us, we pray.